The Deal with Yield is a podcast series covering the issues that matter most in crop production. Tune in to episodes on iTunes, My Farm Radio, and thedealwithyield.com. Tweet any question you have for the hosts with the hashtag DealWithYield or email them at host at dealwithyield.com for the chance to hear their response. Welcome back to The Deal with Yield. We're back with our two hosts, Joel Whipperforth, Winfield Ag Technology Application Lead, and Kyle Reiner, Winfield Master Agronomy Advisor. On this episode, we'll be exploring all things early in season. Kyle and Joel, let's start with plant nutrition during this early stage of the crop. Are there common nutrient deficiencies during this time normally? Well, it's uh, one of those things, Linda, if you look at this and you look at the field, if it's actively growing, there will be some deficiency show. And also there's another factor that we need to think about is if it's not in a growing environment and everything's stagnant and nothing's growing, the roots are nothing, there will also be some deficiency showing there also. But uh, as we go through the life expectancy of a corn plant or soybean is different periods of deficiency shows up in critical time where you need to make an application if it is become deficient. In corn, it's usually on the micronutrient side of stuff, it's usually zinc in our area. In Minnesota, we're just about 90% deficient in zinc every year. It seems like we have the hardest time getting zinc on the seed or in through the tissue of the plant to control the deficiency or responsiveness to get it in adequate position. Joel? Yeah, I think one of the key elements for a successful plant nutrition program is it's always starting with a soil sample. Whether you do that fall or spring, just being consistent. But then also being able to gauge with a tissue sample, with an in-season measurement of what you're trying to manage. And certainly that unlocks, you know, of the 17 essential nutrients required for plant growth and development, hey, which ones might be a little bit limiting? You've seen some macronutrient tools come out like Climate's Nitrogen Advisor trying to guide you through that nitrogen decision. Kyle, I know you've got some hybrid data on what nitrogen matters in bushels. What's been the history in our answer plots for nitrogen? So in our answer plots in 2015, we had a 61.1 bushel advantage to nitrogen. And each individual hybrid will respond differently based on the genetic background of it. Some respond highly to nitrogen applications, and there's some that don't show a return on investment on additional nitrogen, which is kind of hard to believe since corn is in the grass family and grass is green and a little bit more fertilizer makes it greener. But corn, there is different inbred lines out there that do respond differently to nitrogen. Yeah, and I think some of the options that have changed for being able to manage nutrients in season One of the ones that we tried in the answer plot last year was the Y-drop system. And really it was just about being able to place nitrogen later in the season that if you don't have an irrigation pivot that can side dress nitrogen that way, it's kind of tough to get through some taller corn. But some of the uh, distributing nitrogen closer to in-season or closer to the uptake period netted us 20 more bushels in some cases over putting it all up front and pre-plant. And I think matching the uptake periods for nutrients with the uptake periods for the plan is one way that helped us get a few more bushels out of the same field. I think the big thing is not just as easy just to go take a tissue sample. You need to know which leaf to pull during that critical time. And when we look at in corn, it's a V5, five collars, right? And then V10, and then also at R1. Those are the kind of critical periods that we want to make sure there's enough nutritional value within the plant to show that there isn't a deficiency that could cause 
rows around, rows length, or tip back on a particular hybrid. Have you ever taken a tissue sample or gotten a call from an intern asking if they should take a tissue sample and they say, hey, Kyle, should I walk out into the field? There's standing water out here. You told me to go take this tissue sample. Should I take it? Have you ever gotten that call? I have had those calls, and my response to is the same every time they call is, if it's not actively growing, don't waste your time taking a tissue sample. I think some of the interesting results that we saw last year on tissue samples was using the R7 tool in some of the higher biomass areas. That was actually some of the places where our plant nutrition was actually lower, that in our better parts of the field that the plant nutrients that the soil was able to supply weren't keeping up with the growth of what the plant was requiring. And that was kind of interesting to me that when you got to some of the redder areas on the R7 biomass image, that the redder areas actually were more adequate in plant nutrition just because they had a smaller plant and that plant's root system was able to meet its demand, that something else was its limiting factor. I think the biggest thing that I like about tissue sampling, Joel, and maybe you think differently, but tissue sampling to us and myself and my mindset is to actually take a tissue sample, see the results. If it doesn't need anything, we don't have to apply it versus some of the competition out there that maybe have five, eight different micronutrients in there and they're throwing a bunch of stuff at the wall to see what sticks. They don't exactly know what could have changed the plant development to where we're doing a precision rifle approach and going, yep, if it's short of zinc, we put max and zinc in. It sounds like a lunchable plant nutrition program. Do you ever eat lunchables? I try not to anymore, Joel. I think they're awesome. I love them myself. There's always just a little bit of everything in there. Are you telling me that that's not a good approach to plant nutrition? I've seen your lunchbox, Joel. You can fit a lot of stuff in there other than lunchables. Maybe let's focus a little bit more on beans right now in the samples. Uh, yeah, actually, you know, soybeans in particular, when you think about them from a plant nutrition perspective, one interesting tie to soybean plant nutrition is that if you are really, really, really low on potash, there's an opportunity that aphids, soybean aphids, actually seem to like those more. Now, I've only really seen that be the case if you can visually identify the potassium deficiency in beans, but there's something to that relationship between aphids and potassium that they will colonize in those areas that have low potassium. Kyle, I don't know, you've planted soybeans a lot of years. Have you found particular things in nutrition that matter from a base fertility standpoint? As far as a macro, not a lot on the macro side. It seems like I get field questions every year. Why are my beans yellow where I double up my spray applications on the end or or why are they yellow in certain spots? And usually the question is, what's your pH in those spots? Is it IDC or is it not? Or what rate of what herbicide did you use? And sometimes if you make a higher application of a herbicide, you could actually induce a manganese deficiency in soybeans. And there's corrective measures to allow that to not have that sour belly look to them and actually keep growing through that period. Yeah, so speaking of sour bellies, I know you spend a lot of time walking soybeans in the summertime, and in particular walking IDC plots. And I get a lot of questions from growers when we put a plot up alongside the highway, and the front third of that plot is full of pukey yellow soybeans. Do we just not know how to grow soybeans all that well, or what are we looking at? IDC is a iron deficiency in, in chlorotic symptoms looking. So you look at the leaf itself, it's yellow and then the intervenal is green. It's not that we don't have enough iron in it, it's just not available to the plant. In my space, the world, we do some infro iron products to combat that. And then also there's a genetic soybean difference that you can actually plant certain varieties that do handle that environment. Also with that 
There's another combination that you need to think about too is sometimes if you're if you get high nitrates in your soil, sometimes that can induce a level that is higher than normal on pH or an IDC symptom looking spot. In some situations you might see somebody in a manured rotation with a high carryover nitrogen would impact IDC more? could be that or it could be a, a year that we get into a little droughty symptom and don't have a lot of rain to wash the nitrates down through the soil profile and if there's a good amount in those areas that don't produce and usually in those areas also the drainage isn't the best and so the plant doesn't pull up all the nitrates from the year before so there might be a little residual left over to have a symptom show up like that. Linda, you asked about soybeans and sometimes why they're yellow. One yellow symptom that we'll see a lot of times in the month of July is a glyphosate-induced manganese deficiency, where glyphosate is a chelator and it's going to grab onto the manganese that's in that plant and shut down photosynthesis in that part of the leaf. So that all kind of boils back down to if by chance you're spraying glyphosate in the month of July and you want to reduce that yellow flash that you see from glyphosate, a couple things. Try to eliminate overlap as best you can. Try to not spray your weeds when maybe you should have sprayed them in June, and we do that by using a pre-emerge herbicide. But a third piece is you could use a micronutrient like Maxin manganese to try to overcome that deficiency. And I think that's one of the big things. Even without the yellow flash, a lot of times on our tissue sample reports, manganese is something that's showing up as something the plant is demanding even beyond what you can see. We call that hidden hunger when we can't see the deficiency, but yet the plant nutrition or plant tissue sample says it's there. In many areas of this world, you should be done spraying by the 4th of July. A wise man once told me nothing good happens after spraying soybeans with a herbicide after the 4th of July. And what happens is you stress the plant out and it starts aborting some of the flowers, thus the flowers are the pod sets, right? And if you abort the flowers, your pods aren't there and you're going to be shooting yourself in the foot. So get your spraying done before the 4th of July unless you're double cropping your soybeans. I would agree. I think that's probably the same guy that told us to go to the 4th of July picnic with our family and not be out spraying. But, you know, you think about reproductively, soybeans are going to pollinate for 45 to 50 days versus your corn crop that's maybe going to pollinate for 10 to 12 days. So you've got an extended period of time where that soybean is weighing out what sort of yield retention it should hang on to. And certainly a herbicide application during those times is lower, especially one of the key things we want to be done with is the burner applications. We want to be all done with anything that burns, the diphenyl ethers or the burners of the world. We want to be all done with that by the 4th of July, not just for the burning aspect, but also for the carryover aspect in things like uh, uh, Yeah, you know, I, I don't want to use the, the – what? how do you say it? Fomasafen? Yes. That is correct. Some people say fomasafen. Some people. <laughs> You've been listening to The Deal with Yield with Joel Whipperfirth, Winfield Ag Technology Application Lead and Winfield Master Agronomy Advisor, Kyle Reiner. For additional episodes of The Deal with Yield, visit iTunes, MyFarmRadio, and TheDealWithYield.com. Tweet any question you have for the hosts with the hashtag DealWithYield or email them at host at DealWithYield.com for your chance to hear their response.